back. This is The Dish Pig, where we go on a journey, discovery, in the food and booze world. I'm your host, Nick Sherry. Special thanks again to Aaron Drake for the intro music. He actually dropped an album this year. It's called Adult Themes for Beginners. Check it out. Very soothing tunes. And a big shout out to everyone in lockdown, wherever you may be. I know Australia's in the in the thick of it again. And if you can, wherever you are, get vaccinated. So this week we sat down with the king of carbonation, Mike Capaferi, also owner and operator of Thunderbolt here in Los Angeles. It was just voted the second coolest bar in the world by Time Out magazine. You could probably argue that it's probably number one. So let's get into it. Mike Capaferi. Thanks. Uh, first off, it's it's a sensational name. Like Thank it, you. It, it, it reminds me, when I hear it, I almost, it reminds me of like maybe like a professional golfer on the first tee. It's like, you know, up next, like Mike Capaferi. Or, or, you know, maybe like a pro baseball player. It's got that kind of ring to it. I mean, both of those were things that I thought I was going to be at mm-hmm. like 10 years old, and neither of them panned out for me. But uh, yeah, it's a name that, uh, it means head of iron. Head of iron. It's head of iron. Strong. Very stubborn, very stubborn family. Yeah. Uh, it's also a name that inspired a lot of nicknames growing up. Okay. Imagine. So, top, know, top, some, top, some, top three? Some, some more appropriate than others. Really, most of them, like, not, not for a family show. Okay. Like, some okay. of them pretty, pretty bad. I'm still, I'm, I'm still determining if, yeah. this is a, is, if this is a family-friendly show mm. or not. I mean... I will drop the F-bomb at some point. Oh, well, heads up. We had, we had uh, Nick Reed on the last episode of The mm. Dish Pig, and... It was. It, it started very well, but then when he got very relaxed and comfortable and really started getting some old stories, I think the f bomb kind of, uh, you know, meter well, really started to peak. Were you drinking tequila while recording? Or? We actually weren't. Oh, okay. We were like, he we doesn't need it. Very, very professional. Very professional. Uh, now tell me what what was the last thing that you cooked for yourself? Oh man, you know, I, I love cooking, and it's a thing I've done like three times in the last year and a half. Um, but we moved into a new house, and we have a grill for the first time in a couple years. Nice. And so we had, like, our first, like, have a couple people over grill out, I don't know, a week and a half ago So the mm-hmm. last time I cooked. Mm-hmm. And we did, like, a proper, you know, couple of big steaks and yeah. a bunch of veg and made everything on a grill, and it was lovely. It's just, just, it felt just, like real life again. Just like a nice way to spend an afternoon. Yeah, yeah. Drink a ton of wine, eat a bunch of steak, go to sleep at 8. Yeah, one of those kind of nights. Start early, finish early. Yeah, yeah. It's spot on. The older I get, the more enticing that is. <laughs> I concur with that. Uh, now, you're, a, you're, from, you're from Atlanta, Georgia? You're a Georgia boy? From Atlanta. Spent the first 25 years of my life there, and then I've been yeah. in L.A. for almost 11, coming up on 11 years. There's always – I keep every time – I probably see this in the movies more, but when someone says, oh, I'm from Georgia, like the, the, the first response is always like, oh, you're a Georgia peach. It's where, that, where does that shit come from? I, I, I don't know. Look, uh, somebody from Georgia is going to hear this and be pissed at me. Like the peaches are awesome there, but like they're no better than California peaches. What, like what they really grow a lot of there is peanuts. Really? Yeah. And Vidalia onions. Vidalia onions are the thing that are so good. Like this like, uh, like a sweet yellow onion from down south. That are amazing. But yeah, peaches are great there, but like they're kind of great everywhere. 
when it's when it's the proper season. So, so next time I meet someone from Georgia, I'm like, oh, you're 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 a Georgia peanut, or you're you're a, you're yeah. a Georgia onion. You're a Vidalia onion, <laughs> and uh, you know, just don't. Don't say you're from Hotlanta. That's the one thing that people always say. Hotlanta, like, okay, no, yeah. Nobody really, nobody says that there. Yeah. Yeah. Hotlanta. It does get hot. It's hot there right now. What was it like growing up in Atlanta? I mean, you know, I lived, I lived 25 minutes north of the city, and it was incredibly suburban and green and beautiful, and I grew up in, like, a, a very middle-class subdivision full of other kids my age, and, you know, we played in the woods all day, and... Mm. Built tree houses and swam in a creek and did that kind of stuff. Sounds like a very kind of angelic, you know, it was traditional kind of upbringing. Looking back, yeah, I was very lucky. Yeah, it was easy. Growing up there was easy. Yeah. You know, like school was, schools were good. People were great. Safe place to live. Tons of nature. It was good. And this is where, you know, dreams of maybe a, a pro ball player or, or golfer were we're kind of sitting with you, yeah, just I mean, those early days. Everyone plays those things where I'm from. And so I started playing golf very young. I started playing all sports young because you're just outside all day and uh, was like real mediocre at all of them, you know? <laughs> so those dreams went away quickly, but... Uh, I can totally relate to that. That's... And like really okay at most sports I've tried. Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah. get by, like enough, enough, enough to, to participate. Yeah, you know, I was, I was there when like when lacrosse first made its way to the South. Okay. I was like just entering high school. And so I was early enough adapter of that that I was good at it because like people had just started playing and then was, like everyone caught up and I was mediocre again. Cause like, I mean, from, from Australia, l- l- lacrosse is not a thing. I mean, like field hockey's a thing. Mm. Lacrosse is, is, I mean, when did, when did lacrosse even become a f- fucking sport? Lacrosse is like native American. Lacrosse has like been around forever and ever and ever. Got it. it got native it. Okay. American game adapted into you know, a uh, kind of like bougie Ivy League mm. Northeast U.S. thing that then expanded to the rest of the world. Yeah, yeah, it's very fun. It's like it's like hockey and soccer and football in and one. And you can you can like fucking bump them out of the way and oh, everything. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it's yeah. like it's like a very full contact game. I had multiple concussions from lacrosse. Wow, very clumsy. <laughs> yeah, it's a very fun sport. It's yeah. like very very high speed. The real fun sport is indoor lacrosse because you play. Okay, you play in like a hockey rink. Mm-hmm. Not on ice. It's very fun because there's like the whole element of like the boards and like the ball. So the ball's ricochet. bouncing off. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And people are bouncing off. It's very fun. Nice. Yeah. I might, I might YouTube some indoor lacrosse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's my, my bones hurt thinking about it. I'm too old for that now. <laughs> well, I mean, as you, you know, I guess, you know, when you start to get a bit older and you're still in Atlanta, like what was, what did you see yourself actually doing professionally as you were finishing up high school and like, you know, thinking about college or not or like you know what was what did that look like yeah you know i uh i in atlanta you can start working very young i got my first job in hospitality on my 14th birthday making 14 14th making six dollars an hour to make smoothies at a planet smoothie okay Um, yeah and like the running joke is that that's why i ended up bartending it's like that was my first mixology you know it was (laughs) like no if you add blueberries to that one it's like this custom thing you know so um yeah, smoked a ton of pot and made a bunch of smoothies, uh, you know, like that was that nice. was my intro to hospitality. But I was always very like, I think I was poisoned at a very young age with like, you just got to, you got to work for yourself. You got to work for yourself. You got to work for yourself. So my goal was always like to do something for myself. Yeah. But hospitality was always my means to an end. And then those things like one day kind of came together. So 
uh, yeah, Planet Smoothie at 14. That closed down right around my 15th birthday, and I started at my first restaurant, and I had, like, this incredible chef who, like, took me under his wing and taught me everything, so... Hang on, you, you started at your first restaurant at 15? 15. 15, yeah. So 14, I did a year at Planet Smoothie, and then they closed down. Uh-huh. <laughs> my first restaurant job uh, was this <laughs> incredible concept called Wild Times Cafe that was like, uh, I mean, it was like a, it was like a Walmart-sized footprint. It was like probably 60,000 square feet. <laughs> and it was like one side was an adult arcade, Dave & Buster style. The other side was like a kid's place where you would like just drop your kids and they'd play in like ball pits and tubes uh-huh. and, and one of those things. And then the middle was like a high-end game-heavy restaurant. It was the worst concept on earth. And it was like, it was like the Appalachian version of a rainforest cafe. It had like fake trees inside. It was <laughs> fucking terrible. Um, but the chef there was amazing and like taught me everything. That was like the first place I learned to be a prep cook. And by the end of it, I was working on the line, like doing saute. It was very fun. Oh, so you were actually, so you, so you, you, you were chefing, like you were... I mean, I was 15. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. And like, you know, they needed help. So yeah. I was there, I was there cooking like while starting high school. Super fun. I was there like three what, days a week. What, what kind of dishes were you, were you pumping out there? I mean, like... What was know, like the nut, what, what was like the most popular dish on that menu? Can you remember? Oh man, no. I, the, the thing I remember making the most, because I worked saute and there was like three... There was like three pasta dishes on the menu, and they were all like variations of shrimp scampi. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they were all like, they were all like real, real basic. Um, oh man, I can't remember those. That was twenty-one years ago. Yeah. Um, so that was like kind of my intro, and then you just kind of fall in love with that business, and then like the one restaurant to work at in town, Stony River Steakhouse. Wild times didn't make it. Clearly, even though the concept was, you know. So brilliant. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I just didn't make it, and so I went and got a job <laughs> at Stony River uh, Steakhouse. They wouldn't hire me until I was 16, so I went and I got the job on my 16th, like right around my 16th birthday. It was like everyone who went to my high school who like had to make their own money went and worked there because it okay. was, you know, steakhouse. You made all the money in like a very country clubby sort of neighborhood. Got it. Okay. And, you know, I started like working in the back and then like quickly realized I could make a lot more money if I went up front of house and you know started as a food runner and then a server and then started bartending there that was my first bartending job at like 1920 you can bartend at 18 mm-hmm. you can't drink until 21 but you can serve it up yeah i think i was 19 or 20 when i started bartending and i worked there for nine years i worked there all through high school and college i mean the you know the little bit of college i went to it's on a, and off it's a long time it's a long time yeah. So if you're serving, so you can serve booze when you're 18. So if if you're mixing up a cocktail and you, and you want, to, you can't even taste it to see if it's you know taste it. nice and nice and balanced. It's just uh, you know liquor laws are antiquated and arbitrary. <laughs> I mean, there should be a minimum drinking age. Don't get me wrong, uh, but it, yeah, it's bizarre to be able to make the drink and not taste it. And then, so what kind of what was. I mean, you were there for nine years. Nine. In that ninth year, what was it that was like, all right, guys, I'm out. I'm doing something different. I think like, I'm moving on. Yeah, I think uh, like I had like middle child syndrome. I was like the one who always wanted to go travel and get away and move, and I'd, I'd just been in Atlanta for my whole life. Mm. I went to college at Georgia State, so like when I moved out at 18, I moved 20 miles from my parents. It wasn't yeah. like really leaving the roost, you know? So um, I was toying with a lot of different stuff, you know, during college, I'd started a textbook rental business was like my first foray into owning a business. And that was a nightmare. It was actually really cool. We're kind of like first to that me and one partner, we were 21 
we did it at one school. Hang on, so instead of going to a library, they come to you? No, so instead of buying wildly expensive textbooks, uh-huh. they could rent them from us for a semester for like a fraction of the price. Yeah. Um, and it was a really cool business, but it like killed us. And so I dropped out of school and started that. Then I went back to school. What, then, what, what were you studying at, at college? I mean, I was like a, a business major, which is very generic, mm-hmm. nothing major. And then I stopped, went to the textbook thing, came back after like a year and a half, went to school for fine art, went to the studio art. Yeah. And then quickly realized that I was like, okay at it and like, didn't really care to do it as a career. And the time I'd like started copywriting in the automotive world, I was doing all these like, uh, articles for like online automotive magazines for the motor trend online and those yeah, right. types of things. And got a job offer in LA, um, for like a startup automotive website that turned out to like not make it, but I was looking for anything. So I was like, I'm going to move to New York. And then this thing came up to go write about cars in LA and it paid, you know, nothing. So, mm-hmm. like, on a whim, I had visited L.A. one time. I went and visited. 90 days later, I moved. And just came out here. Fuck it. Let's try it. Making zero money. And I was like, well, obviously, I need a bartending job to survive out here while I figure out if I want to be an automotive copywriter forever. Mm-hmm. And so, like, the craziest happenstance, and this is, like, a rabbit hole that's going to be incredibly boring to anyone listening to this, but, like, <laughs> uh, I moved to the South Bay, which is a beach community. Uh-huh on New Year's Eve and I had this great resume and great like can do attitude. And I like put on a tie and went out and started applying for jobs every day. And they were like, yeah, great resume, man. Like come back in the summer when we hire people. And I was like, Oh, seasonal. I didn't even think about that in the <laughs> South Bay. Like it hadn't even crossed my mind. And I didn't really, I had no idea how big LA was. Yeah. And that like the South Bay is basically another state. It'd be like driving to Birmingham, Alabama from Atlanta every day. And so I exhausted Every avenue I had to get a job out here, and because you have to know somebody to get that first gig. And then mm. I had one friend in Atlanta before I left, Mark Frazee, and he said, I know someone in L.A., and if you can't find a job, I'll connect you, and maybe he can help. And so total last effort, emailed him. He connected me with a guy who happened to work at Soho House. Oh, okay. I went in an interview the next day. They hired me on the spot just based on his reference, and that was kind of like how I started a bartending career in L.A. Wow. Yeah. How, thin, so, thin thread. How long were you, I mean, how long did you wait until approaching that contact? It took me about a month. I was like okay. every, every day applying for jobs for a month and then talked to him and it happened like immediately. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, so, so Soho House was where it kind of, would you say like, you know, I mean, it was still like a part-time job just to get by, but or was it when things got more serious on the bartending side of things for you? Yeah, so I'd applied as a bartender, and they were like, we need a server tomorrow. And I was like, I need money today. So, great, <laughs> I'm a server. Let's do it, you know? And so I worked there for about a year before I moved behind the bar. When mm-hmm. an opening finally came up, they moved me behind the bar. And I had, like, a great mentor there in Chris Ojeda and really learned, like, what you can do with bartending. Like, there was no, like, bartending careers in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. There was no, like like this industry is so like it's like this this big wonderful dysfunctional family where you can really move up and have a career in the industry if you're a good bartender and that had never occurred to me i'd never witnessed that before it was not a reality for me so i never considered pursuing it like as a profession yeah but at Soho house i sort of got a window into that world where i was like oh this is a thing you can do and you can be very successful and it's a very fun lifestyle and you know it's it's a party party for work and so you're very excited about that and i 
read all the books and entered some competitions and did the whole thing. So I like do- I kind of dove in and then quickly realized I could make a lot more money doing that than writing copies where I was like mm. comparing two minivans and writing 300 words for 30 bucks, you know? Because, I mean, it, it's interesting, interesting, interesting you say that because, you know, like for, for, for your average punter that, you know, goes into a restaurant or a bar or, you know, whatever, they wouldn't necessarily consider bartending as a career per se. Like, I mean, for me growing up, if I was to look at a bartender, it's like, oh, it's, they, they're just doing this now, yeah. but something else is going to come along later. Like, it's, it, it, it always seemed to be like this, this job just to kind of, you know, get by until, until something else comes along. But would you say that the profession of a bartender has kind of really, I guess you know, become more lucrative or grown, you know, incredibly more as the industry's grown, like there's been more opportunities. Like how's that developed over like, you know, the last 15 years? Yeah, I mean, I still think for a lot of people, it is sort of like the second job or the means to an end. And even, mm. so your ability to, to turn like a bartending job into a profession or like a bartending career is still really limited to, major markets where liquor brands want to focus their attention and money. Like that's really just how it is. So if you live in a tertiary market, it it might not happen for you. It's harder to get your name out there. It's harder to meet the right people. You're not getting invited to all the brand trips. You're not going down to Mexico to visit distilleries on a company's dime. But if you live in a major market, New York, San Francisco, LA, Chicago, and they're, they're expanding to, you know, now there's like, a lot of attention on, on B markets like Austin and, and, mm-hmm. and Seattle and Portland. Um, you have an ability to sort of like progress in that world and be in the spotlight and make a name for yourself and yeah, sort of like sort of like build a build your own sort of brand yeah. within that world. And you can do that while working at someone else's bar and you can make a career of it. And you can get consulting work and you can get brand work and you know, there's sort of a whole world of possibilities that opens up to you once you're sort of connected to that world yeah yeah and it's also an industry full of like a lot of people who are kind of slackers and not punctual and (laughs) drunk all the time and so if you have like ambition and you're responsible and 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 you can present yourself like you can really go far yeah and i don't think that was the case 20 years ago 15 years ago Mm -hmm. because i think yeah i mean it's very easy for someone to look at say a chef and be like all right that that makes sense like they go out they you know in a lot of cases, they'll they'll train, they'll they'll get their credentials, they'll start in the kitchen, they'll develop their own like their own brand, like their own kind of you know um, type of cuisine, whatever it might be, and then they go out and open their own place. For for a bartender, has it? Do you think it's been? Is 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 it harder to kind of generate that brand and kind of actually be be recognized and given kudos for like? the types of drinks and the type of programs and concepts that, you know, you kind of come up with? I think it, I think it used to be more difficult. Like, I think, um, I mean, it depends what we're talking about, right? If we're talking about a, a chef who gets recognition and, and gets some press and it, the end game is to open a restaurant, mm-hmm. then, yeah, I think historically that's been easier for a chef to, to find that person who wants to invest in them because the chef is not paying for their own restaurant. You know what yeah. I mean? They need someone to be like, I love what you do let's go open a thing and I'm going to partner you in because mm-hmm. uh, chefs don't make enough money. Neither do bartenders. If it's like building a brand where you're trying to hunt down consulting work and do bar programs for people, then uh, these days it's probably easier for a bartender. 
Yeah. If you can use Instagram, I am saying sort of more bartenders get that opportunity to get their own place based on what they're doing. It's, I mean, it's a conversation I have a lot where people reach out to me and are like, you know, I have this restaurant group who wants to invest in me and wants to open a spot and I'll be partnered in. And how do I go about that? And what does that deal look like? And so I, I, again, I think that used to happen with chefs all the time. And now it's starting to happen with bartenders where mm-hmm. people are, people are seeing these bartenders on social media or the, you know, these people have a huge following and, and investors want to invest in them and open concepts with them. And um, yeah, I see it happening more and more. It used to not be a thing. How would you split you know, like if someone's opening a restaurant and, you know, it's no, it's no secret that, you know, the margins are pretty tight when, you know, you're, you're, you're selling food and you're making a lot of profit on um, your alcohol. But comparing, say, just a, a bar, like a straight bar to a restaurant, are you still looking at similar, similar kind of margins? Like it is still pretty tight or is there a little bit more upside if you're, if you, if you're just slinging booze? I mean, I think there's a ton of upside. I think that adding a adding a working kitchen that puts out a quality product to your operation is is 10 times the work of running a bar like mm. it's i mean you know we were talking about it before this just staffing the thing is a nightmare you know even pre covid so it's a it, the investment of building out the place is massively more expensive if you're going to have a kitchen um running it is massively more expensive you know the margin is Margin is what it is, but there's still a profit on food. If you're running a 30, 35% food cost even, it's, it, you know, it's about twice the cost of goods as your bar program, mm-hmm. but it's still there. It's still money. And, the, and the, you know, the, the hope is that the food brings people in and they drink more because they're eating and they stay longer because it's more of an experience. But, I mean, the investment to open a restaurant compared to a bar is, is massively larger. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the problem in most cities is that it's much harder to get that license to open without the food element. Uh-huh. So in Los Angeles, they don't give away what's called a Type 48 license, a, a license to sell alcohol without food. There are no more of them. So the ones that exist, exist, and you have to buy one on the open market. And I don't know what they are now, but pre-COVID, it was, you know, you're going to spend upwards of $150,000 yeah. on that license. Whereas they give away... They give away a number of new restaurant licenses every year. So full liquor if you sell food the whole time. And they want to see a full kitchen build out, and they want to see the whole thing so you can't scam the system. Yeah. So it's, it's a lot harder to get the licensing to open that tavern-style concept with no food that is – there's no new dive bars. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a reason there's no new dive bars yeah. in L.A. is because <laughs> you, can't, you can't open one. You can't get that license. All those licenses are – Ancient and so They're valuable. Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, your, your staffing is 20%, 25% of what it is for a restaurant. Mm-hmm. I mean, just think about how many times you've been to a dive bar and seen more than one employee there at a time. <laughs> <laughs> I've got 10 people here a day. And, like, I go to a dive bar and there's one person behind the bar. And that's it. So, yeah, it's, it's massively less expensive to run a straight bar program. So, Soho House... So going back to your kind of journey, journey upwards. What um, I mean, how, how long were you there for, and, and what came next? I was there for like three and a half years. Okay, um, man, yeah. Talk about like thin thread. So the reason I left Soul House was because I got a consulting gig, like the first one, and it came out of this like wild, like I, I realize as I'm saying this, like the amount of like luck and privilege I've had in, in making a career in this business, right? Like uh, I was working at Soul House. 
busting my ass. I was there full time, five, six days a week. I was like traveling for them, doing all their like task force, they called it, you know, Art Basel in Miami and Art Freeze in New York, those kind of things. So I was like in. Mm-hmm. And then I had no money. The, you know, bartender spent all my money every night after yeah. work. And I was invited to like the one friend from Atlanta that I had who lived in LA before me was getting married to a French girl and they were doing it in Paris. I had no money. And it was like, my only friends in LA were going and I was not going to go because I couldn't afford it. Yeah. I'm like, my parents got wind of this and they were like, we'll split the ticket with you. We'll give you some money. You need to go on this. You need to go to this thing. And so I go to Paris for this wedding and have the time of my life. And I'm the only one of the guys I know that's not in the wedding because we just weren't that close. Yeah. And so I ended up hanging out with all the like girlfriends and wives of the groomsmen the whole time. And just like really hit it off with this one girl, Courtney, who spoke a little French. And so her and I were just like, we were on food and wine. Like that was our duty for the group. Like we handled all the food and wine yeah. and just like partied for a few days. And through Courtney, got really tight with her husband, Rahul, who, you know, became a friend and randomly reached out to me a few months after the wedding and was like, hey, can I buy you lunch? I'm doing a thing in New York and I want to pick your brain. So Rahul uh, and his family have a ton of franchise businesses. Okay. Popeye's, 7-Elevens, Denny's, a bunch of hotels. Yeah. Fairfield Inns, Comfort Suites, those types of things. And he's, so he brought me to lunch and he said, I'm opening the first Denny's in New York. Or first Denny's in the city, like in the five boroughs. And we have a liquor license and I want to put a bar in it. And we own like 50 businesses and we've never done a bar before. Yeah. Like, let's just talk about it. And so, you know, we, we talked through it and I'm like, well, here's kind of what you need to think about. And like on my way home from lunch that day, he just called me. He's like, do you want to come and like do the bar there for me? And run it. Well, I consult on it, get it open. Right. Come out for six weeks is what he said. Yeah. And I was there for six months. Okay. So, so I, you know, I thought about it. I said, yeah, it's like, you gotta, you gotta take the shot. You gotta go do the thing. You know, like I love New York. Love to go spend some time there. I can come back and get a bartending job anywhere now. And you know, like now that you know people, you're going to get a job when you come back to LA. And so I went, what was supposed to be six weeks, six months in New York. Insane. We like, we did this whole thing. We built like a cocktail bar in a Denny's. I was, I was just like, I'm dying to hear about what this okay. actually looked like. So it was in a, it was in a landmark building mm-hmm. in the financial district across from Pace University. Incredibly beautiful build out. Like this could have been any restaurant. Like it was gorgeous. It was like a Denny's. This, this insane like marble bar top. I got to like design the thing. It was so great. I got to like, like it was like a six month, like insane in depth how to open a restaurant lesson. I got yeah. to be in every meeting with Rahul. I got to meet with all the lawyers. I got to meet with the architects. I got to like help manage construction. It was like, I, I learned everything I know about the finance and the build out of a restaurant from that experience. It was really cool. Um, it, I mean, it was just like, it was, it was college in six months. Yeah. So I got to do that and we got to build up this crazy bar and it was really fun. We did this like very New York menu, very like fun cocktails that were, you know, approachable and like, someone who'd never been to a cocktail bar before would be comfortable drinking it. But then mm-hmm. like the nerds would also appreciate like what we're doing at a Denny's. And, uh, and we had like, that was like the first draft system I built. And then I like, you know, for years I've been consulting on people's draft systems. It was like when, you know, we did a, we did a bunch of cool things, but the one thing, and it was like the dumbest idea, <laughs> there's this bar called swine in the West village that my good friend from Atlanta worked at. And so he used to spend every night there. And like, we're a week out from opening Denny's and I'm like, I need like, I need the thing. I'm like, I need this like stupid New York tourist thing 
that they're going to come for because no one cares. I was like, we have to do a thing. And I was like, what if we just like sell a bottle of Dom with your Grand Slam breakfast? And like, it's a $300 breakfast, but you get a bottle of Dom. And, and uh, I was like, what are we going to call it? It's like Grand Slams. You've been, you've been to a Denny's? Yeah. Okay. The Grand Slam. It's like the, it's like the you know, the breakfast plate of everything. Yeah. Right? Like, you know, little, little bacon, little eggs, little short stack. Exactly and- right. Exactly right. And so uh, over the course of many drinks, we came up with the name the Grand Cru Slam because it's Grand Cru, Grand Cru, <laughs> Grand Cru Champagne, right? Very clever. Very good. Very and good. So like we put this on the menu and it was like 300 bucks and it's two Grand Slam breakfasts and a bottle of Dom. And it was, it was vintage Dom and it was like a bottle that would be... 350, 400 anywhere else. And it was 300 and it came with two breakfasts. And so it was actually kind of a deal. It's and not bad. Eater wrote this article about the opening and like mentioned that. And like Eater National saw it and was like, oh, this is the thing. We're going to talk about this. And then like the night, the day before opening, like news crews show up <laughs> and like go crazy for this Grand Cru Slam thing. And so I did. How, like, uh, how many bottles of Dom did you actually have in the fridge? I only had ready like a to go. case ready to go, so I had yeah. to scramble and get a bunch more Dom. But like, I did. I think it was eleven TV interviews in one day. Holy Most shit! Most of them were live. I'd never been on camera before. It was just like, oh, to go. Like no warning, no nothing. Like I was in a sweaty t-shirt and I had to like run back to the apartment I was in, put on a tie, come back, like terrified <laughs> in front of a camera. And I did like eleven TV interviews. Like the phone was ringing off the hook. Like some San Francisco radio show like asked for me and I got on the phone and they're like, Oh, you're live on the radio in San Francisco right now. I was like, what the <laughs> fuck? This is crazy. And then like our PR guy was like, Oh, you did $10 million worth of free PR for Denny's in one day. Like their stock price when we opened went from three to $10 a share. Bullshit. Yeah. It was fucking crazy. <laughs> and like, it was like this wild, it was like this wild ride of, of, of opening. And then like, you know, night before opening, there's like a line around the corner. Cause this thing opened at 4am. Yeah. Couldn't sell booze until, 9 a.m. I can't remember. 9 a.m. Noon, something like that. There was like a line to come in, and there's a whole thing. And then like, you wow. know, they closed. It made it three years, three and a half. Three years, years and then three, it was three and a half years. Yeah. But yeah, I left. So I was there like April to October of 2014. I stuck around for like the first month or so of it being open mm-hmm. to like help. Had like a great head bartender there who was running it, and then back to, did, back did, to LA for me. Did the did the bar part of it close or the whole the whole like the whole whole Denny's? The whole thing closed. Whole thing closed. Yeah. People just didn't care. Yeah. After a while, like the hype was there, and then it was like, it's New York. It's tough. The Grand Cru Slam. Hey, it's good. Good name. Yeah. Like. Good idea. Julian Dennis from Atlanta, still in New York. That is that was that was his insight. I can't take all the credit for that. Yeah. It's like, I don't know who said it first, but it was over many drinks, the two of us, <laughs> shutting down this bar until it like came out of nowhere. So he, he's due a lot of credit. He'll never hear this, but if someone knows him. He, he helped come up with it. We'll, 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 we'll put out a search or something. Yeah, we'll we'll yeah, yeah. track him down. Um, so after that, so, uh, what, well, what like, comes next? It was, a, it was a success, at least at first, right? And so Rahul and I uh, realized that we love working together. Mm-hmm. And it was like, let's go back to LA and let's, let's find a space and let's do something. And this was uh, October 2014. I came back. And it was like, I hit the ground. I was like, I'm going to start hunting for a space and let's open a bar in LA. That was like the plan when we got back. And uh, at that time, I was bartending at No Name. It was Sean Parker's bar over on Fairfax. Yeah, yeah. Um, It was great. So, like, that's kind of how I was paying the bills. And then uh, as I was looking for space, um, I got reached out to by Campari. 
So Campari was hiring a new position, Italian portfolio brand ambassador. And it started out as a part-time role just in LA. I was like, oh, this is perfect. Like, I love those brands. And uh, it just, it, that, that part-time job that I took, like, blossomed into, like, the greatest four years ever. Like, it was, it became a full-time role. It became the whole West Coast. It became this, like, like incredible opportunity to, like, build out educational programs. I was the first person in that role in this territory, so there were no training decks. There were no nothing. So I got to be, like, a part of, like, building out how we talked about the history of things like Campari and Averna and Aperol, Chenard, Braulio, and how we use them in drinks and how we talk about the science of bitterness and how Amaro is made. So it was, like, uh, I, like that's kind of, like, how my brain works. I love the science aspect of things. And yeah. so, and you see it in the drinks here. But um, that was, like, the dream job. So for four and a half years, I did that. And that whole four and a half years, and I was, like, very open with them. I was, like, I'm going to open a bar in L.A. And my boss at the time knows how hard that is. I was, like, great. You, you, Just leave, <laughs> you leave when you get your bar open. And I'm, like, cool. It's going to be, like, a year. You can have me for a year. <laughs> and, of course, four and a half years later, we, like, finally, we finally got this thing going. So, um, yeah, I got to, got to travel a ton. Got to, I, I was averaging about 120 bars a month I was going to as wow. a brand ambassador um, from, like, Austin, Texas West. So it's a lot of bars and a lot of drinks. Well, and it was like an incredible opportunity for insight on like what everyone's doing. Like, you, like, uh, like a few of us that were like on that same circuit of travel, like I think had the best idea in the country at the time of like what was going on in the bar world. Cause mm-hmm. we were at the places, we were looking at the menus, we were meeting the people, we were tasting the drinks. So we were seeing like all the trends as they were happening. It was incredibly fun, obviously 120 bars a month. Yeah. Um, but it was like, it, it was such a unique opportunity, like, if you want to open your place, to know, like, exactly what's possible and what's available, and you can pick your favorite bits from all these places you go to and incorporate those into your own concept. Is it a, I mean, I, we'll, we'll definitely get back to Amaro, because I want to I, I pick your brains on that, but when, when, when we're talking about bar trends and you being out there and seeing everything that people are doing, is it, is it, a, is it a fine balance of not being too gimmicky not trying to bring something to the table that's, you know, people are going to get sick of in, in two years. Is, is it a fine balance to, to hit that sweet spot of actually being able to, you know, survive and keep, keep the place going for, you know, years to come? Like, what's, what's that, you know, what, what's, the, what, what, what's the secret ingredient there? Well, I mean, I think what I learned is, like, you do want to be trend-proof, right? Like, like they keep opening, but, like, how long are are like speakeasies with mustachioed bartenders and leather aprons going to be a thing? Yeah. Like how long, are, like they're insufferable. <laughs> yeah. Like it's like, who wants that anymore? Like I'm just like, what? Like how is that an idea of a fun night for anyone? So I, I think what I, what I brought back from it was like, I think you kind of want to be timeless. Um, I think you kind of want to be like trend proof, you mm-hmm. know, I think, well, I mean, LA loves a trend, so maybe I'm wrong, and, and, and you know, maybe, maybe we die because we're not hip enough, but like, uh, we want to be like a neighborhood spot where people want to go every day, not like where you want to go for your bachelorette party. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we, we kind of want to just be like your third place. You have home, you have work, and then you have like us, where you're so comfortable. So we're, we're trying to be a neighborhood bar, and that's kind of what I brought back is like, you can there doesn't have to be anything pretentious about a great cocktail. Mm-hmm. Like we, I think we serve a great drink here. We put as much work or more than anyone else into their cocktails. Like, you, you know, 
12 to 14 hours of prep for a drink that takes me one second to serve you, crack a can, pour from a bottle, whatever. It's all behind the scenes, and you don't need to see it, but we care a lot. Yeah. And you don't have to have an Edison bulb, you know, to do that. You don't have to, like, be hacking a whole block of ice behind the bar and take 15 minutes to serve that drink. You can just be, like, a comfortable, casual neighborhood place with, like, real genuine happy to see you hospitality Mm -hmm. so that's i don't know that's sort of what i took back and there's a lot of places doing that well we wanted i mean it's super important like it's you know yeah i mean we we wanted to be that place and we wanted to like also make ourselves available for like all occasions like you can have dinner here you can Mm -hmm. have drinks here you can do either of those things at any seat in the place it's not like we reserve the dining room for three course meals only like you can kind of sit anywhere and do your thing and be on your own schedule and that's kind of what we wanted yeah yeah so, jumping back to Amaro, was this, I mean, when, before, well, you know, when, when you joined Campari, was, was the knowledge of Amaro's already there, or was it something that you kind of really just dove into once you started with them, and then that's where, you know, all that expertise came from? I mean, I think I, pro- I probably thought I knew a lot about Amaro when I took the job, but, like, I had no idea. So, mm-hmm. you know, I was familiar with the products. I had used them in cocktails. I knew what they tasted like. Um, but, like, that job was an opportunity. Like, because the training systems didn't exist, I had the opportunity to, like, dive so deep and dig up information. And I was given access to a ton of information, which was really cool. Like, I got to go tour the main facility where everything is made and bottled like no one gets to go on that tour it was very cool you know so i was given like this i was given like a ton of leeway i was given as much information as i could be given um and so it was really learning that on the job and so you know like we built out like a bunch of fun interactive demos um where people could learn how to like how amaro is made and we could like make an instant amaro and like we did all the, we did all these very fun like hands-on activities that allowed me to sort of travel around and, and build out these things and you know get 50 bartenders in a city together and like have this very fun event and drink a bunch of amaro and make it and it was, it was very cool so it, i did not go in to it with a with a fraction of the knowledge i came out of it with yeah and for our for our lovely listeners out there, talk talk us through the like the basics of an amaro, like how it's made, what it's used for. Yeah, I mean it's it's like the most vague it's like the most vague category because there's no real like defined rules, but like mm-hmm. amaro means bitter, and so it is either a a fermented or distilled base product, so either like a wine base or a spirit base, and you then macerate botanicals into that, and ideally the ending profile is a bitter profile. So some of those botanicals are roots or barks or seeds or fruit peels or spices that lend a bitter flavor. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of things can be in Amaro. Um, there's no one saying you can't. I've tasted many products that have the word Amaro on the label that are not bitter at all and maybe are just more like a liqueur that isn't bitter and mm-hmm. still can be great, but there's no sort of like regulatory body for Amaro. So... There's an incredible amount of variation within the category, flavor-wise. Um, there's also a ton of history. I mean, when we start talking about, like, Campari, which there's a whole argument about whether that's tomorrow or not. Okay. Um, it is bitter. That's, yeah. that's for sure. Um, who, who, who doesn't get, like, wh- why wouldn't it be considered an, an Amaro? Because it's consumed as an aperitif. And so usually, like, an Italian would be like, that's not Amaro. It's an aperitif bitter. 
Uh huh. But you know, if it's something you drink after dinner, then it's maybe more of an amaro. Got it. But some things you drink before and after, and is it you know, it's very vague. And yeah. Every Italian will tell you they're right about it being amaro or not. But I did <laughs> one of the one of the favorites from the old trainings we used to do uh i built what we called the amaro family tree and it was like this insane flow chart with like hard lines and dotted lines and dash lines and if you've ever been to one of my trainings you've seen this thing and it was like putting things into categories sort of like a taxonomy of amaro okay. in the aperitivo world and the whole point of that exercise it like builds as we go through it it ends up being like this insane mass of like interconnectivity and like, is it that category? Well, it's kind of also that category. And the whole point of the exercise was to be like, it's vague and make it what you want. And there are no rules. And that's kind of what's great about it. No two Amari tastes the same. You know, there's a, the, an incredibly wide range of alcohol content and sugar content. So, I mean, they're very different products. If you, if you think, look at something like, uh, if you look at Campari and you look at like Fernet Branca, mm-hmm. like Fernet has much more alcohol and has literally one-tenth of the sugar. So it's like the, the range of flavors is massive yeah. within the category. And so it's cool. And if you're adding an Amaro to a cocktail, you're really adding, you know, from like five to 100 ingredients because some people make very simple three, four, five ingredient Amari and some make Fernet. It has like a ton of stuff in it. You know, Campari has like 60, 70 different botanicals in it. So you're adding a lot of different flavors. That's a ton. It's a ton. It's too much it's a lot is there any truth to um having an amaro so so i i'm i love having an averna on ice with a slice of orange after a big meal yeah is there any truth that it actually does help settle your gut i mean does your gut feel settled after you have it because well, like even if it's placebo, maybe it's working. Well, that's the thing. I mean, you, you, usually I've, I've eaten a, a, a shit ton of food. I've probably drunk a lot of booze, and I'm just you know I'm just gonna you know I'm just doing it for the sake of it. And I mean, look, thinking thinking back, it does feel a bit settled. I I think that I'm a I'm a forever cynic, and I think that in my experience, there's absolutely no science behind that. <laughs> there's absolutely zero. It is it is a history. It is tradition that it makes your stomach yeah. feel better. I don't. <laughs> Maybe no one's paid for the report, for, like, the study to see if it actually does. And also, like, it's an immeasurable metric of does my stomach feel settled, right? I, I, think, that, I think that maybe the act of it makes a lot of people's stomachs feel better. And mm-hmm. so it's a tradition that hopefully lives forever because it's great. Yeah. I, I love an Amaro after dinner. It's kind of sweet. It's kind of bitter. It's, like, a good palate cleanser. It doesn't make my stomach feel better, like, mentally, probably. I probably <laughs> think it does. I also got in the habit of... You know, working for Campari for four years, whenever someone would bring that up, I'd be like, I cannot make any medical claims about the effects of <laughs> our products. You know, like you can't, we couldn't use the word refreshing about an Aperol spritz because refreshing could be conceived as a medical claim, you know? So like, I really? definitely couldn't say this Braulio is going to help you digest your food. So, Got on. but I also just don't believe that that's scientifically true. I yeah. think that if it makes you feel like it's going to digest your food better, then you're going to digest your food better. I'm going to have to maybe, I, I might have to dedicate an entire episode of this and just dive in and speak to some gut yeah. specialist. Yeah, that's a good idea. R- really get down to it. Or just, you know, study on yourself. Like, go eat like a yeah. bunch of really spicy Thai food and then come <laughs> in here and, and drink tomorrow and tell me if you feel better. <laughs> oh, man. So, when, um, so leading into your time ending at Campari and the creation of Thunderbolt, 
Um, what, what does the sign say at the front? Cock, uh, cocktail, natural wine, and biscuits. Yeah. I like that sign, by the way. Oh, thank um, you. The local, local guy hand-painted that for us. It's really nice. Nice. I wish I could drop his name right here and plug him, but I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to yeah. come here and yeah, be angry. I owe him one. Um, but, you know, t- t- talk us through how it all came together, like, you know, finding the space and, and figuring out what that, what that concept was and just kind of backing yourself. I mean, it's probably just years and years of, of experience, but... Well, we had a, we had a ton of time uh, on accident because it, it's so hard to open a restaurant or bar in Los Angeles. They make it almost impossible for you. There is no assistance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it's, it's wildly expensive and permitting processes are an absolute nightmare in this town. So... I looked, so I got back in 2014. I started looking. Uh, I had two brokers, like, sending me spaces. The thing about real estate brokers is all they send you is, like, these very sterile, like, mixed-use apartment building developments that are apartments upstairs and some new, like, you know, separated retail space downstairs that is malleable. And they're all very sterile, and you're going to be next to it, uh, CVS. And it's absolutely not what we were looking for. So... I just beat my head against the wall with that for a long time. And then I was driving downtown and I literally drove by the spot that Thunderbolt is in now. And there was a dusty old restaurant space for lease sign hanging above the patio. And I called the number and it was the owner of the property's cell phone number. And the conversation just started that way. Crazy turn of events that Park's Finest Barbecue next door. One of the owners, Christine, went to college with my business partner, Rahul. And they were like, student activists at UCLA together. And so it turned out to be this like, Jeez, incre- that's random. It was crazy. Right. And so it turned out to be this like incredibly serendipitous relationship with them and their partners here. Wow. It's wonderful. Um, and they're the best neighbors, but this space is a ton of history. The space was, uh, like an infamous after hours called the dinner house M or house of M. Most people just knew Mickey was sort of the woman who ran it and it ran from like the seventies until 2011. It got shut down and it was like wow. this very illegal, Serve till 6 a.m. after hours. We had to have a password to get in. So I love it. We get people who walk in and, like, take three steps in and stop. Kind of <laughs> look around, and they're like, oh, my God, I've been here before. And so, <laughs> so we still have her sign outside from the Dinner House M as, like, our, our homage to her. But, um, but anyway, no, no, no uh, password, though. No password. No, no, no. I, I, our liquor license was very expensive, and I would like to keep it. Yeah. So we don't. I also, like, too old. To, I can't be up till 6 a.m. <laughs> drinking. That's crazy. Um, I've got things to do. So anyway, we found the space, signed a lease, blah, 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 blah. And then just realized what an insane permitting process it was going to be. So we signed mm-hmm. a lease in like April of 2015. And I'm thinking like, okay, going to take a year, year and a half to do this. I don't have to tell Campari yet that I'm going to open this thing. Four and a half years later, we're finally ready to open. So wow. I left Campari in April of 19. We opened September of 19. September so, of 19. And leased it in April of 15. Oh, shit. So four and a half years. Wow. Yeah. Thank God I had that full-time job the whole time. Like, I wouldn't have known what to do. Like, it was so, we, it was nice because, like, we were really lucky. And in our lease, we, like, worked out we didn't have to pay rent till we opened. Oh, uh, okay. And so we right. weren't, weren't on the hook for rent. Yeah. We were going as fast as we could. It just takes that long here. I think that if you talk That's to just other... Insane. LA restaurant and bar owners who started from scratch like us didn't take over an existing space like they will tell you it takes that long I mean you have to like make parking spaces appear they want you, <laughs> they want you to have a parking space in LA for every 200 square feet you have inside 
one spot every so so how big is this place reference this place is 2400 square feet okay how many bars in los angeles do you know that have 12 parking spaces (laughs) the answer is zero zero (laughs) bars have 12 they don't have any parking spaces so it's like you have to go through all these hoops and loopholes and uh, it's insane it's insane to try to open a spot in la you have to really really want it you have to be completely dedicated to it yeah so yeah, that's me. That's me telling anyone listening not to do it. Just don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Got any tips for any aspiring, yeah, yeah um, you know, bar owners? Yeah, don't. Don't. Um, now, I I, 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 I want to read you something that you actually sent me, which, which I found really fucking cool because when we're talking about Thunderbolt here in Los Angeles, California, when you're talking about the bar, you said it's consisting of a beverage program that uses behind the scenes tech and science to serve delicious, consistent and reasonably priced cocktails in a safe and accessible space for people of all kinds. That sounds like the most amazing fucking place in the world to have a drink. <laughs> Thank you. That was, like a, that was like a bunch of random thoughts that uh, my girlfriend did a really good job of putting into one sentence. <laughs> yeah, I can't take credit for that, but yeah. it was like... We had like a, like a super like, uh, we never had like a mission statement in one sentence like that, and so I had all these ideas about what we were going to be and like what our main principles and tenets were, and so that is sort of the, the amalgamation of that into one phrase. Yeah, and I think it's great. It's it's perfect, and I think it's like always something we can like look back to when we're doing anything, picking what event to host, what pop up to do, what cocktail mm. to put on the menu. Um, you know, like how we're going to run service, how we're going to do it. We got, we think about those things whenever we make a decision. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, then, yeah, go sorry, ahead. go ahead. Go ahead. No, and um, I was just going to kind of hone in on the tech and um, the hmm. science behind, behind the drinks programs here, uh, program here, because I mean, wh- one of my favorite drinks that you guys have had, and I, I assume it's still on the menu is the liquid picnic. Yeah. That one's still on there. Uh, that one can't go away. That's, but- but like that's, I mean, you'll probably have to kind of run us through exactly how that's made. But like that's that that that's a very good example of, like you said, you know, like there's 14 hours of of behind the scenes activity going on to create this one drink. Um, but I mean, wh- you know, wh- wh- where did that where did that science and tech kind of because it, it, it but it's not kind of over the top in your face when you're like if, if you're coming here to drink like the science and tech is not kind of in your face there. It's it's all the behind the scenes stuff like you said. But where where does it kind of where did that kind of stem from? Yeah, so, I mean, that drink is a, is a really good example of, like, how much work can go into a thing that looks so approachable and familiar. If you look at the liquid picnic, it's a, it's a very basic, not flashy Nick and Nora glass full of clear liquid. You know, it, it looks like any ungarnished martini. It yeah. looks like a, a bowl of cold vodka, right? <laughs> um, and that's what we wanted. Like, I think we want all our drinks to be that way. Like, we want them to look very familiar and, like... The, you know, the, the, like, the cartoon, the caricature of the thing, you know, we just want it to be very simple. But then when you taste it, we want, like, your mind to explode. Yeah. If you care. Or if you're not a cocktail person, when you taste it, like, oh, it's really good. I'll have three of those, you know, <laughs> um, because we, we have to sell shit to stay alive. So the Liquid Picnic is a good example of what happens when, like, you're the person who's doing your bar is involved in the planning process of building it. Because it doesn't cost any more money to build a bar that is purpose-built for the type of cocktail you're going to produce than it does to build one that is completely dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. You're buying the same type of equipment, buying the same things. 
it's, it's about how you lay them out and like the specific items you buy. And so that's, I think what makes our bar really unique is like, I got to design it knowing what the menu was going to look like. Right. I knew what sort of techniques we wanted to focus on. Like the menu's built on a rubric where every drink is centered around like a technique or, or a method or a, or a flavor that is kind of unique to us. Mm-hmm. And so we built the bar to execute those drinks. Uh, just to like give an example, like every well has like a crazy carbonated water system with like this highball tap that uh, has cold still filtered water as well. And you have like a carbonation rig built into every well. Um, we have custom refrigeration on the back bar at 20 degrees Fahrenheit, which is sort of halfway between a freezer and a refrigerator. And that's really the key mm-hmm. to us being able to serve things at an appropriate cocktail temperature uh, without having to shake or stir it to yep. order. So the liquid picnic uses a few of those things. So uh, liquid picnic, we want to read as uh, just like a delicious gin martini. Um, because that's what it is. And so it's a gin martini that, like, I don't have the menu in front of me, but it says, like, gin, tomato, citron, salt, pepper, rosemary. Mm-hmm. I think is what it says on the menu. And then it says, reads like a salad, drinks like a martini. Yeah. Which I thought was very funny. <laughs> so uh, what we do is, you know, when you make a martini, you pour your gin, you pour your vermouth, you stir it down with ice. What that ice is doing is not just making it cold, you're adding dilution to the drink. So you're mm-hmm. ending up with like an ounce and a quarter to an ounce and a half more liquid than you started with after you strain off that ice. Um, what sort of the way we build out the bar allows us to do is use things other than water for that dilution, but still serve it at that appropriate temperature. So when you start an alcoholic solution with ice, it gets much colder than if you were to stir water with ice. Stir water with ice, it's always going to be 32 degrees. It's always going to equilibrate at that temperature. Yeah. The higher the ABV you go, the lower that temperature is going to get when you stir. So a, a cocktail served to you at beer temperature, like 33, 34 degrees, is gross. You want a cocktail served at a much colder temperature if you shake it or stir it appropriately. So yeah. what we do is we make a clarified tomato water in the centrifuge that is like clear clear liquid Uh um, but has this like great sort of umami note to it and texture and salinity and we use that in place of water for dilution in the cocktail so it's a measured amount of clarified tomato water that goes in and then we put the whole thing at 20 degrees so it is even colder we ran a bunch of tests and it was like we could someone stirring that cocktail with water instead of tomato water could get it down to about 21 and a half 22 degrees we serve it at 20 so it's like viscous cold like freezer martini style. Yeah. And just kind of like pops with these like umami rosemary sort of notes. It's very fun. It's delicious. It's delicious. But it's a shitload of work. And like when someone orders it, we pull a bottle out of a freezer cooler, 20 degrees, and we pour it into a frozen Nick and Nora glass. Mm-hmm. And we spray like lemon oil that's been dispersed into alcohol so that we're not wasting lemon peels over uh, the top of it. Yeah. And we just hand them this glass that with no, gar- we don't garnish any of our drinks. And we just hand them this glass, and it looks very simple, and it took us literally four seconds to serve. Yeah. And so if you're not curious and you're not asking, it probably seems like, a, like it was an afterthought. Like, oh, they, they just, like, pre-batch that cocktail. It's probably yeah. shit. But, like, if you care, there's, like, a whole story behind it, and there's, like, a whole reason. There was, like, a ton of planning, and we literally built the bar around serving that drink that way. And so most of our cocktails are that way. Well, because I, th- I think that, I mean, when I first tasted that drink was when i mean COVID had hit Mm. and you had started doing the takeaway cocktails and i mean reading it you know reads like a salad tastes like a a martini i'm like yes i'm in yeah um but yeah i mean you're right like if if you if you weren't i guess if you weren't paying attention to the 
I don't know, like the ingredients and yeah, everything behind it. And, and I, I think after that, I remember seeing on your Instagram, there was like a whole kind of reel of videos, you know, going through the process of actually making it. Um, yeah, we, do, and we, we try to do those. I mean, those are, those are hard to make, but like, I think it gives people sort of insight into what it looks like. Yeah. Because when you come here, like the centrifuges are put away and no one's got like carbonation bottles all over the bar and you don't see it on part. We don't want you to see it. Mm-hmm. Like if you care or if you show up right at four when we open and like we're behind that day, you're going to see it. You know what I mean? Sometimes it doesn't get put away till five. Yeah. I'm fine with it. Like if the canned seamers on the bar and you see us canning up a bunch of Trabi pops when you come in, like that's kind of cool, whatever. We just don't want to be in your face about it. Like the whole thing was like avoiding smoke and mirrors. Uh-huh. Like I don't, it, like the pomp and circumstance is unnecessary for the finished product. And so like everything is in an effort to make something taste better or be more consistent or like, not cost twenty dollars. Mm-hmm. I don't want to sell twenty dollar cocktails here. Yeah. So because we don't want to alienate where we live, we, you know, it's not we're not in Beverly Hills. Um, and like I don't want to pay twenty dollars for a cocktail. That's crazy. Yeah. No so, one does. And I don't want to wait twenty minutes for it. Yeah. So anyway, it was all sort of like built around built around those concepts and those principles. And is that something? I mean, that was, you know, pr- probably for a lot of bars and a lot of restaurants. Like born out of COVID was this other way to bring some money through, you know, in the door. And the city made, they made changes that you could actually sell these takeaway cocktails, right? And it's, it's, it's stuck around, the it's law? Stu- it's stuck around. For so now? we know that we're going to be able to do it until the end of the year. Okay. There has been no insight given into how long. But we, knowing that we had it till, uh, like, through 2021, allowed us to invest in it a little bit. You know, we built out the, the liquor store in the space, we're allowed to sell retail right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, watching New York get it pulled out from under them with 24 hours notice was brutal. People oh, had, really? Oh, yeah. So people had invested a ton of money in product, in canners, in vacuum sealers, in, you know, just restaurant equipment to make these to-go programs happen and keep them legal because there's all kinds of specifics about how you can package your cocktails and it has to be a one-time open mechanism People made huge investments, and these are tiny, small businesses that didn't have money for that, and then they just took it away with 24 hours' notice. Jeez. Tragic. So, luckily, we know we have it through the end of the year. Who knows how long after that? Like, they're going to pry it out of my cold, dead fingers because we're going <laughs> to keep capitalizing on it, and it's, it's been a huge boon for us. We were, because totally serendipitous situation, if you can call anything about the last year and a half of COVID serendipitous, uh, is that we were sort of built for it to go right away. Uh-huh. We kind of knew it was coming because we saw it happen in New York. They got it before us. I was like, okay, we have a few days. We're probably going to get this in like the next week. Yeah. Sure enough, we did. And so we had lined up the can seamer already. Um, we were already clarifying and carbonating. We were already making like a very shelf-stable cocktail. Like all of our stuff's good for 30 days at least. And honestly, like I've had year-old Troppy Pops and they're great. <laughs> you know, like the pineapple in there is pasteurized. It's at a high enough ABV. You know, it's, it's carbonated. There's no air in that can. Like... Good. It's good, yeah. They're good, and so we ran all these tests. We were, like, shipping them across the country. I mean, I would never ship alcohol illegally, but we were shipping them across the country. I'm, like, get it, letting them get super warm and then bringing them back down to temp and opening them and seeing how the carbonation was, and, like, they, they hold up. So we were, like, uniquely built for this. And so I think our to-go cocktail program was kind of, uh, like, people were looking to it as, like, how to do it. And we really did our best to, like, spread that information. Like, we did not want that to be proprietary. I think that everyone here was on board, like, Let's tell the world how to do this because it's working for us. Mm-hmm. So we were like, like those videos on Instagram are very much being like, you can do this too. I'm like, here's ways to sell your cocktails. Like you don't have to buy a centerfuge. You don't have to do all this stuff. Like you can do, you can do some of these things and here's what's working for us. And here's how we make our 
like vac seal pouches and you don't need an expensive vacuum sealer. You just need a heat sealer. Like mm-hmm. we, we tried to do a lot of that. And I think we did a good job. We got a ton of feedback and people were super thrilled and people launched their own to go programs. And, um, you know, we wanted everyone to survive COVID. We don't, <laughs> we just thought like we want to be the only bar left in LA. You know what I mean? Like we were, we were trying to like help do what we can to keep everyone open. So, you know, it, it was a small drop in the bucket and it, it wasn't enough, but, um, we were, we were adamant about like sharing as much information as possible. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping it's one thing that actually does stick around out of this, you know, like it's, it could be one of the, if you want to find some kind yeah. of positive out of it. No one's died from to go cocktails. Like, <laughs> like I have a bar across the street from like two liquor stores that like, there are just dudes sitting outside drinking you know, whatever out of a paper bag all day. Like that's been going on for years. It's not going to stop. It seems crazy that someone can't come buy a cocktail from us instead. Exactly. They're already doing it at the liquor stores. It's, you know, it's, it's also, I mean, it's not, yeah, no, it's not hurting anything. Mm -hmm. And it's also a huge boon in sales for us. Like all the bartenders here are trained that when someone is closing out their tab the other night, we're like, how many cocktails do you want to take home with you? You know, Uh do you want some of these at home? Like we're closing at midnight, but you can go home and drink four more of these and sell them to you right now. You know, it's like, it's a, it's just like this upsell thing, you know? So I hope it stays forever. Yeah. It's been, it's been huge for us. It's just, I mean, it's, it's such a nice touch because it, like, even if you, you know, if you want to pop down to the park with some friends and just kind of hang out and, you know, instead of taking a few bottles down with, I mean, I, I'm not even sure what the actual laws are for having open liquor bottles in the park, oh, yeah, but don't, it's, don't, don't take don't, our don't. cocktails to the park. <laughs> I'm like, you can't, you can't hear me winking, but you cannot take these cocktails and drink them in the park. If, Especially if you don't peel our label off first that says you got it here. Yeah. So, you know, don't do that. It's very convenient. I'll say that. It's very convenient. It's incredibly convenient. Yeah. I, I, I do want to ask about, you know, what, what is coming up and what the future holds for, for Thunderbolt. I mean, it's probably something that you can't really answer at all considering the current state of the world and especially things here in California. But, you know, what do you... You know, like, what are you hopeful about? What are you not hopeful about? We got, we got six months in, like, to the day before COVID. And so we were just barely, like, becoming what we are. Like, we've been open twice as long as a COVID bar mm. than we were as a normal cocktail bar. And so I really want to, like, find out who we are. <laughs> you know, I don't think we've even found that yet because we <laughs> haven't had one second to, like, just have a normal service. Yeah. There are no normal services here. I've, something is programmed every day. There's a... There's a to-go cocktail thing happening. There's an event happening. There's a fundraiser. There's always a fundraiser here. You follow us on social media. We're always raising money for something. You know yeah. what I mean? So we just haven't even like gotten into what service looks like. So I want to settle that down. Um, reopening allowed us to like sort of reward a lot of the staff, which is great. So like everyone got a promotion that's been here since the beginning. You know, one of our bartenders is the GM now. One of our bartenders became like operations manager. Yeah. Um, you know, like everyone's getting promoted. And so I, I'm excited about being able to, like, not be the guy anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, I want to be one of the crew. But like I'm excited about, like, everyone sort of settling into their roles and this place running with, like, some management. Um, and just, like, getting into normal service. Which will free me up to, like, do what this place was sort of built to do. And we can, like, take this show on the road. So now that, like, we can pull catering permits again, I want to see Thunderbolt stuff popping up all over the city. And I can kind of oh, nice. manage that. Yeah. Um, 
you know, personally, what's next is like I I'm really looking forward to doing some work in like the menu inclusivity space. Like the biggest, like one of the shittiest things that happened to me this year was I got diagnosed celiac halfway through COVID. And I lost like 20 pounds and got super sick. And, wow. uh, you know, my life was like traveling and eating. Yeah. It's a very privileged thing to say, but like that's been ripped away. And so like we've put a huge focus on menu inclusivity here. And like every week we're doing something to our menu to make it more accessible to people with dietary restrictions and allergies. And I think that yeah. uh, part of my focus is sort of like taking that ethos around and promoting that. Mm-hmm. So it's like I don't know what that looks like yet. I don't know how to manifest that thing, but that is like a thing that is coming soon. So, yeah, that's that's sort of what's next. Awesome. I don't know if that answers the question. No, I, hope I you know like but I hope people start showing back up and without being scared of getting sick. Cause well, that's it. I mean, we can stay here if we stay busy. So that's the that's every restaurant owner's hope right now is like, are people going to keep coming? Yeah. So, well, this is this has been great. Thanks, uh, thanks so much. This was so fun. Um, if My ever, pleasure. Anyone that's in the Los Angeles area, they should come down to Thunderbolt. Yeah, and let's get the sales pitch in before, yeah, yeah. We, before we wrap up here. Yeah, What's, what, what's the address? S- somewhere on Temple. It's 1263 West <laughs> Temple Street. It's in historic Filipino town neighborhood of Echo Park at the nexus of downtown LA, Angelino Heights, Echo Park. Wonderful neighborhood. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see what cocktails I can buy to go and then enjoy, enjoy the weekend. Awesome. Thanks, man. Thanks, Nick.